0: All right, so we're going to be in um, verses 9 through 13 of Mark 1. We'll read that in just a second, but um, first, have you ever noticed how your, um, your perception of who somebody is directly begins to influence the way that you act towards that person? For example, uh, when I was in grad school, I worked at this coffee shop in a little town in Arkansas. The town was pretty small. And working at that coffee shop, I kind of knew most of the people, the regulars that kind of came in and out of there. One day I was up there studying. I wasn't working. I'm sitting on this couch in this coffee shop and these three strangers walk in. And I knew that I'd never seen them before. I knew I'd never seen them come in the coffee shop and they look kind of cool. And one of them came and sat down next to me on the couch that I was on and I struck up conversation with him. And as we're talking, I find out that they are musicians and they're on the road and they're traveling. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a musician too. I'm like a a guitar player. I am not a professional musician. And I was like, yeah, I play guitar. And so we start talking music. Then he gets a phone call It interrupts our conversation. And he takes the phone call and he's talking. And I can tell in his conversation that he's talking to like a tour manager or something. So I kind of, I kind of peer over like this to see, and he's got his laptop open on his lap and it says Nickel Creek tour schedule. And are any of you Nickel Creek fans in here? I don't know. Yeah, a few of you. So I was a huge Nickel Creek fan at the time. Uh, Chris Thiele, their mandolin player, was phenomenal. I just loved him. And then I I realized, like, this is... This is Sean Watkins sitting next to me, and I look across the room, and there's Chris Delay sitting at another table, like, flirting with some girl. And then I see Sarah Watkins, the, the fiddle players, and I'm like, oh my goodness, Nickel Creek is in our coffee shop. And then I realized they were playing at our university that night, so how could I not have realized who it was? So I, like, jump up and I run into the kitchen. All, the, the, all of us that worked at this coffee shop love Nickel Creek. I'm like, guys, come here, come here, come here. I'm like, Nickel Creek is in our shop, and we're all like, "Wow." So then I, like, do this really stupid thing, and I put one of their albums on, and I start playing it in the shop. So, stupid. And I go back out and I sit down next to to Sean and I'm like like, trying not to laugh. And eventually I I like make conversation with him again. And this time the conversation is so different. My perspective on who he is has radically changed. I'm not talking about my guitar playing abilities in front of Sean Watkins. Like I'm just not going to do that. And the way that we talk is different. And so sometimes our perspective of who somebody is really changes the way we interact with them. When we realize that there's something special about somebody, or a talent that they have, or that they've accomplished something great, then the way we begin to act towards them changes. And, and, you know, that can come from, like, an insecurity, immaturity, and that results in, like, babbling, fanatic lunacy, you know, like, ah! But this, was, this wasn't like that. It was like, I had a respect for him, and I wanted them to know that. And this morning, when we come to encounter Mark's introduction of Jesus, it's like he's going to bring us face-to-face with this question of, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Because your perception of who Jesus is has the potential to radically re-alter the entirety of your life. Who is Jesus to you? And what is your perception of who he is? Whenever I think of this question about who is Jesus, I'm always reminded of this uh, teacher I had in high school in like 11th grade. He was a uh, history teacher and I think he coached basketball as well or something, and he was one of those teachers that liked to have the reputation of someone that goofed off with the students and had a good rapport with the students. And one day in class, we're not paying attention at all. We're like goofing off and, uh, you know, just making a fool of him and us. And finally, he, he, he resorts to threats to get us to pay attention. And he just says, listen, guys, I'm, I'm working on your final right now. And if you don't start paying attention, I'm going to make your final so hard that Jesus couldn't even pass it. And we all kind of laugh. And he goes, no, that's not good enough because Jesus was just a man. I'm going to make it so hard that God couldn't pass it. And I remember as a 16 or 17 year old, however old I was like that statement really stood out to me. I mean, this was a guy that as far as I knew, like went to church every Sunday and his statement was Jesus was just a man. And as a, as a 16 year old kid, I was still wrestling with who is Jesus to me? Like, what do I believe about who he is? And is it okay to say that he's just a man Is there more to it than that? And I think our natural minds, the place we want to go, because it's more convenient, a little more comfortable, is that, yes, Jesus was great. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a great prophet. He was a healer. But in the end, he was just a man, right? God is God, and Jesus is Jesus, and Jesus is just a man. But I don't think that Mark is going to let us settle for that conclusion about who Jesus is. So let's, let's look in the text together. We're going to read verses 9 through 13. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the word of the Lord out of Mark chapter 1. So this is Mark's dramatic unveiling of who Jesus is. You remember last week we started, we looked at verse 1. It said, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And then he introduces John. Well, now he's come full circle, and he is introducing who Jesus is. And this is what he starts with. And don't miss like the dramatic element of this. I mean, I know a lot of us were together back in November for our birthday celebration and we saw lots of people give their lives to Jesus in baptism, but I don't think any of us saw the heavens ripped open and the Holy Spirit descending in bodily form like a dove on anybody and then a booming voice saying, this is my son whom I love. I mean, this is a dramatic introduction to this man, Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about this verse, these passages this week, I started thinking, Like, it reminded me so much, it's four short verses, four short verses, but when I started diving into it, it was like it just started opening up and bigger, and there was so much to these verses. It reminded me of this cave that I used to lead groups into when I, at my first job in Arkansas, I got to lead groups in wilderness treks and stuff, and there was this cave we used to go into. And when you came up on it, the hole to it was only about that big around. I mean, it was a small entrance to this cave, but then you would rappel down into that hole, and it just opened up into these huge caverns. And then you'd go off in these tunnels, and you'd come to another huge cavern, and you'd go further back in these tunnels, and you'd come to another huge cavern, and you'd just explore it, something that was so small that opened up so big. And this text this morning, I kind of want to act like your tour guide into a cave again. We're going into this cave, and we're going to see the rooms and the expanses that open up into the identity of Jesus. And this is the way Mark starts it. He starts it with this dramatic introduction of who Jesus is. And I'm going to take us into three different rooms in these caves, okay? The three different rooms. The first one is this, that in this passage, Mark is identifying Jesus with God. That these events identify Jesus with God. Second, we're going to see that Jesus invites you and me. Jesus invites you and me. And then the third one is that Jesus identifies with you and me. So Jesus identified with God, Jesus invites you and me, and then Jesus identifies with you and me. Let's start with this first one of Jesus identified with God. So the heavens have been ripped open, the dove has come down and there's this voice from heaven. And um, this introduction of Jesus is gonna clearly identify Jesus with God. It's gonna show that there is a divine connection between this man, Jesus, and God. And I believe it goes further than that. It goes further than that, not just to identify Jesus with God, but it's an identity that comes from God. He's identified by God as God. Let me show you what I mean. We find the clue in in the the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove and in this voice from heaven. So the image of the Holy Spirit as a dove that's probably not something that stirs anything up in us. So we might have a you know, neat image of like a dove like settling down on Jesus' head, glistening with water or whatever. But for the first century Jewish readers that would have read this, there's a deep significance to the Holy Spirit being called a dove over water. There's only one other place in all of the sacred Jewish writings that the Holy Spirit is called a dove. And it's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the very beginning of the whole story. Now, when we read that account in our English translation in Genesis, It says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the waters. But in the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is what they would have read, it reads like this. And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. And God spoke, let there be light. You see, Mark is intentionally showing us that the coming of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus is like a reenactment of the creation. It's like a new creation. It's like God is announcing, I am doing something brand new, that at the very beginning I was the creator, I was there, I made it all, but then sin came into the world and it's been suffering and darkness ever since. But when Jesus comes on the scene, God says, pay attention, pay attention, this is significant. In fact, this is the most significant event since the very creation of the world. I am about to do something new and something different. And the three manifestations of God that were present at at the creation, God, His Spirit, and the Word, are present here at the baptism of Jesus. God, the Father, His Spirit like a dove, and the Word, who is Jesus Christ. One of Jesus' closest friends and followers would record later this man, John, he wrote it this way. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and through Him all things were created. And so with this image of the Spirit as a dove, Mark is saying, look, God is saying, look, this is the most significant thing that has happened since I created everything. And so Jesus is, is identified with God, but he's identified by God as well. There's this voice, this booming voice from heaven that says, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. Now, this, this language of, of a son of God, this is not the first time that this has been used in the history of the Bible. Now, Jesus is the Son of God that has come, but in the Old Testament, there were all these prophecies, all these sometimes seeming random references to a son. Sometimes Israel was referred to as a son, but there was always seemed like there was something pointing more to the future about a son that would come. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 9. In Isaiah, he's an Old Testament prophet who made many prophecies about the coming of God's Son. And in chapter 9, verse 6, this may be a passage that sounds familiar to some of us. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And listen to this. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. For to us, a son is coming. There is a son coming, and he will not just be a man. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, and he will be called Mighty God. God Almighty, in the body of a human being, Let's not miss this. This is, I mean, it really is actually the most ludicrous thing that we could possibly make up, right? I mean, I remember as a kid studying like Roman and Greek mythology and we read stories about God, one of the gods coming down as a human and it sounds so silly to us, right? In our modern mind and the way we think that sounds so silly and yet this is what we claim about Jesus. Not just some God, but the God the creator God, the almighty God, has stepped foot on earth in human form. What a magnificent introduction of who Jesus is. And so in this first room of this cave that we're exploring with Mark, we come upon this massive room where he says, look, Jesus is being identified with God, a connection with God, but he's he's being identified by God as God. So he's identified with God. There's this clear connection by God. This is not a connection that is just claimed by his followers or just claimed by him. It is a connection that comes from God himself. And he does this more than once. Later in chapter 9 of Mark, Jesus is with three of his closest friends. And he transfigures and and looks radiant and glowing. And they're kind of like, what's going on? And there's this voice from heaven that says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. So he's identified with God, by God himself, but he's identified as God as all these pieces come together. It suggests nothing short of Jesus Christ being God in human form. He's connected to creation, he's connected to prophecy, he's connected to this voice of God. Now, this first room that we're in, this first point that I'm making in this sermon, I know I'm I'm spending a disproportionate amount of time more in this point than I am the other points of the sermon, and I think it's because this week, God has just been grabbing my heart and making me wrestle with this claim about who Jesus is. You see, all of us, at some point in our life, are going to come face to face with the question, the ultimate question of reality. We're going to say, why in the world am I here? Why in the world is all of this here? Like, what is this about, God? Is there anything, any meaning behind or beyond what I see in my day to day? What is the purpose of all of this? I think about a dear, dear friend of mine and my wife Amy's. She's not a Christian, uh, but she is a dedicated, like uh, diligent seeker of truth. I mean, she's a very spiritual person and she's been exploring and exploring for years and recently we were in conversation with her and she made this comment. She said, you know, Aaron and Amy, one of the things I think I've realized is that surely all of this that we see all the goodness that we know, surely it all has to come from one source. Like surely there's just one place that all this comes from. And I'm like, yes, like, yes, you're so close. You're getting it. You're almost there. But then I realized that I think, I think in her mind, she perceives that this one source, what she even called a creator, that it was on us and on her to try to tap into this creator, to tap into this one source. It's as if all of humanity for all of time has been struggling up this mountain, hoping and thinking, if I can just reach the top of this mountain, maybe I'll find God. Maybe I'll find truth. Maybe I'll find meaning. Maybe I'll find enlightenment. Maybe I can find escape from the meaninglessness of this life that always entraps me. But what if, what if on top of that mountain was the almighty God, all-powerful, But he was not just almighty. He was not just all powerful, but he was also good. What if he was not just good, but he was also loving and he was kind? And what if he was humble enough to get off his mountaintop and come down to the bottom of the mountain and meet the people that are searching for him so, so hard? What if that is what God was like? And to this, Mark says... Let me introduce you to Jesus, God in the flesh. He has come to show us, he has come to show us who God really is. And so we come to this massive room that we're exploring and we realize this claim that the Bible is making is that Jesus Christ is nothing short of God in the flesh, identified with God, by God, as God. Now we keep going into this cave and we keep exploring this text and we're going to come to this other room where we're going to realize that Jesus is not just God in the flesh, but that Jesus invites you and me into something more. And we see this, you know, Brandon and I were wrestling with this text this week. He's preaching a marathon this morning and we kept, we both kept coming to the same question. Okay, if Jesus really is God in the flesh, which is what we claim and what the Bible claims, then why in the world was he baptized? Last week, we saw that John was offering a baptism of repentance and and forgiveness of sins and confession of sins, and yet here comes Jesus, and he submits to this same baptism. Well, if he's God in the flesh, then surely there's no sin for him to confess or no no sin for him to be freed from. So why does he submit to this baptism? And I think we find the clue in verse 7 and 8. Back up a little bit to something we read last week. Look in verse 7. This is John speaking. This was John's message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John, you can almost see the look on his face as Jesus approaches the river, right? Like, I'm not worthy to untie the one who's coming after me's sandals. And then here he comes and he wants him to baptize him. Can you imagine the look on his face? Like, I, I... I can't do this. Like, I'm not the one to do this. I'm not worthy to do this. And we know that he says that in some of the other gospel accounts. He tells Jesus, he says, no, you need to be baptizing me, not vice versa. Well, you notice Jesus does not disagree with him. He doesn't like take John, no, no, John, you're worthy. It's okay. you You can baptize me. He doesn't do that. But he does submit himself to the baptism. And it's like what he's doing is saying to John, listen, John, you are absolutely right in who I am but guess what? I, am, I did not come as God in the flesh just for the fanfare. I did not come so that everybody would just pat me on the back. I came because I have a greater purpose to unfold, and you get to play a part in that. Come on, John, play your part. And he looks at each one of us in here this morning, and he says, look, I, yes, I am God Almighty. I have come so that you can know what God is like, and I have so much more for you. I want to invite you into the very purposes of God's kingdom. You get to play. You get to be a part. And sometimes when we come to Christ, we kind of have this th- same thing of, no, I, I, you know, that's for other people. You know, I, I, I want Jesus as a savior, but I don't really understand this whole invitation thing to follow him and really give it all up and try to serve. You know, I, I don't have any gifts that I bring to the table. I'm, I'm not really adequate enough to do that. And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You're not, but I'm inviting you and I'm going to equip you. I think about a good friend of mine, uh, my, my wife and I were on a team to plant a church in Vancouver, British Columbia uh, several years ago. And early on in our team's formation, there was a young man that was on our team. And when we would get together to talk, he was always super quiet. He wouldn't say much. One day in a time of prayer, and a time of vulnerability, he confessed to us. He said, you know, I just feel like I'm sitting in a room of spiritual giants and I bring nothing to the table. And he believed this lie that his inadequacy canceled him out of getting to play a role in God's kingdom. And Jesus looks at John and he says, no, it is not about your adequacy. It is about my identity as God and about the invitation that I'm giving you. So whatever inadequacies, whatever fears, whatever, you know, shortcomings we bring to the table, Jesus says, I'm still choosing you. I love you. And I have a purpose for you to play just like he did with John. Let's step into that and I'm going to walk with you through all of it. So Jesus, identified with God as God, steps in and he steps in front of each one of us and he says, I have an invitation for you to the adventure of a lifetime. I want you to join me in the purposes of God's kingdom. I've come down this mountain and I want to show you the way and I want you to get to help others find the way as well. Identified with God, by God, as God, he invites you and me. And then the third point, our final point, is that he identifies with you and me this is another key aspect of his baptism. You see, Jesus, it wasn't about confession of sin for him to be baptized. It wasn't an admission of sin. It was more a submission to carry our sin. It was not an admission of sin for Jesus. It was a submission to carry our sin. You see, this baptism, this is the first place where Jesus identifies with and associates himself with humanity. Ultimately, Jesus' story is going to lead to a cross. We know that. And on this cross, he took all sin upon himself, and he became sin for us. But his taking of our place really began with this baptism, not the cross. In baptism, he took the place of a sinner. I love the way that John MacArthur, one Christian speaker and theologian says, he says, He who had no sin took his place among those who had no righteousness. He who was without sin submitted to a baptism for sinners. In this act, the Savior of the world took his place among the sinners of the world. And then he quotes Romans 8, 3. He says, the sinless friend of sinners was sent by the Father in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So this huge place where Jesus not just comes as God, but he comes and he identifies completely with humanity. And I realize there may be some of us in here that are kinda of going, I don't even know what sin is. Like it's such a vague, what are you talking about? Like how did he take my sin? What is that, what is my sin? And, and if you don't know what sin is, that's okay because all of us have felt the weight of sin. All of us have felt the weight of sin. If you've ever struggled with shame, if you've ever battled with guilt, if you've ever carried remorse, Or regret, then you have felt the weight of sin on your shoulders. And as I was thinking about this image this week of of people confessing sin and of Jesus taking the weight, I I thought again to this same job where I took people into the cave. Part of of what I did was lead backpacking trips. And we all, each of us had to carry a meal for whatever trip we were on. And uh, usually there were five or six of us on this trip. And whoever got the third night's meal was really out of luck because for some reason we decided that it'd be really neat to take tortellini for our trip on a backpacking trip. And so we'd have like this glass jar of ragu sauce and like a big bag of tortellini. I see some people laughing like those are the people that have carried a backpack before. You don't try to carry extra weight. Like you're like, I'm taking a can of tuna and that's it. That's like, that's all I'm eating, you know, or some beef jerky. So we've got this glass jar of ragu. It was so heavy. And you couldn't, if you were the person that got stuck with that meal, you could not wait until the third night because you knew that day when you took your pack off and put it on the ground that the next morning when you put it on, it would be like 10 pounds ladder because everybody will have eaten all the tortellini and the tomato sauce. And I had this image of people at the beginning of Mark, they're coming to the river and they're coming with this weight of sin on their shoulders, this heavy backpack. And John is telling them a message that they've never heard before that, hey, I I have a baptism for you that's going to be for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can just see them taking the backpacks off, pulling out the things that have weighed them down, confessing and going into the river. And Jesus walks up to the river, and it's totally different. His backpack is completely empty. There's no weight on his shoulders at all. And yet he wades into the water And he identifies himself with sinful humanity. And it's like symbolically Jesus is saying, I am committing to be so like you that I'm gonna take all the sin that has burdened you. I'm gonna take all the things you've unloaded out of your pack, I'm gonna put them in my pack, and I'm gonna carry them. They're on me now, I've got them. You're free of that weight. And he would walk with that pack on all the way to the cross where the weight of all of sin's humanity would be put on his shoulders. And he would suffer the death that you and I deserve because of the amount of love that he has for us. God in the flesh. God, hear this this morning. God is not a distant being. He is not a God that stays at a distance and and, and requires you to go jump through hoops and do stupid stuff so that you can come to know him. The God of the universe, he loves you so infinitely. I mean, can you grasp this with me? I know know my words can't really contain it. My words can't really describe it. Our words are so limited, but the God of the universe, the creator of everything good, he did not stay at a distance. He came down from his mountain. He took on a human body. He invited you into the purposes and he identified with us so fully that he bore the burden that we should have had to. This is who the man Jesus Christ is. And his identity with us didn't stop at his baptism. Mark says immediately the Holy Spirit, after he's baptized, the Holy Spirit takes him into the wilderness, into the desert, where he's tempted by Satan, and he spends time with wild animals, and angels attend to him. What does all this mean? I mean, basically this, Jesus Christ was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and he remained sinless, so that he would be the perfect substitute for our sin. Jesus was attacked in his identity, torn down by Satan, torn down by the enemy all through his life. And he resisted temptation after temptation after temptation so that he could identify completely with you and I and take the sin on his own shoulders. And I think Mark includes these details about wild animals. It's kind of random and vague for us, but around the time Mark wrote this would have been around the time that the Emperor Nero in Rome was... was taking Christians and subjecting them to awful, awful persecution. He would throw them in these pits with with, with wild animals, with lions and and with tigers, and and they would be shred to pieces. Can you imagine the fear of that? Can you imagine that? You've confessed Jesus as God, and then because of your confession and the way that you live, you get thrown into a pit where animals are gonna destroy you, like literally rip you apart. Now, we don't, I know we don't face it. it's kind of, it's almost, too hard for us to even imagine. But in your life, there are things that I know threaten, they feel like they're going to tear you apart. There are relationships and troubles in relationships. There are temptations you face. There are addictions in your life. There's brokenness in your family that feels like it's going to tear you apart. And Jesus says, "I've, I've been there. I know what it's like. I know what it's like. I am your strength. I will make you strong. I will be by your side. And then this verse where the angels attended him, it's like, it reminds me of at the end of Matthew's Gospel where Jesus says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. In the middle of our most trying moments, this God who did not remain distant but came, he continues to come and draw near. In the middle of your hardest moments. Jesus says, I will be with you always. I will tend to you. I will guide you. I will be your strength. Lean on me. Lean on me. Trust me. And So this dramatic introduction of Jesus, we see Jesus identified with God by God as God in the flesh. We see Jesus invite you and me, all of humanity into the greater purposes of God. And we see him humble himself so completely that he's willing to identify himself with us, with humanity. This is who Jesus Christ is. Nothing less. Nothing less. So I I go back to the beginning and I ask the question, who is Jesus to you? We have to ask this question. You know, when Nickel Creek came into Midnight Oil and, and they all sat down and I saw who they were, before I knew who they were, they were still Nickel Creek. My first conversation with Sean Watkins, he was still Sean Watkins. I just didn't know he was. And when I realized who he was, it changed me. It changed the way I interacted with him. Jesus is Jesus, and he is who he is regardless of what we wanna believe about him. But if we will accept the truth of who he is, if we will alter our perception of who he is, it will begin to change us. It changes the way we approach Him. It changes the way we understand God. It changes the way our relationship with Him works. As Brandon and I were talking about this this week, I realized that some of the aspects of Jesus' identity, different aspects were standing out to Brandon in this text than what were standing out to me. So he was really infatuated by this invitation aspect and I was really infatuated by this idea of God in the flesh. And I realized it's like we were independently exploring the same cave, but we were coming to different rooms and being, whoa, just amazed by this room that we had found. And I think each of us are probably going to have some aspect of Jesus's identity that we need to wrestle with this morning. Some of you in this room have, have not, you know, you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe you're just still asking the question of who is this man Jesus? Maybe you're doubtful. Maybe you're kind of skeptical. And what I would encourage you this morning, if you are searching, if you're a true, honest seeker of truth, trying to find out who Jesus is, do not let Jesus get out from underneath the weight of the claims that he makes about himself. Don't let him get out from underneath that. And here's what I mean. Like the Bible claims that Jesus is God in the flesh, the son of God. His friends said the same thing about him. He made the same claims about himself. And if you just try to dismiss him as a great moral teacher, as a good man, well, then you're letting him free of some of the things that he said about himself. And I love uh, this week, my friend Dan reminded me of this quote that C.S. Lewis has in Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis is a great Christian thinker and writer. He says it this way, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. Well, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the same level of a man who claimed to be a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. We must make our choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. We can shut him up for a fool, we can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or we can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, some of us in here, have we do know Jesus. We've been in Christian families our whole life, or maybe we've just recently come to know Jesus, but there are different aspects of Jesus' identity that we need to wrestle with some. For some of us, it's it's easy and it's nice to recognize Jesus as Savior because we know he takes our sins and we, we need that. We know we need it. But identifying Jesus as Lord, as King, as God, man, that starts requiring something different of us, doesn't it? If Jesus is Lord of my life, the ruler of my life, then that means every other aspect of my life starts getting rearranged around who Jesus is. It's not that I get Jesus to revolve around me anymore. Now I start to revolve around Jesus. It may be that some of us recognize him as Lord and we want our lives to, rec- to revolve around him, but, but this idea of Jesus inviting us, of Jesus being our, our brother, as in Hebrews two says, that Jesus is our brother and he invites us into these purposes, that feels kind of scary. I don't know, what about my shortcomings? But all of these aspects of Jesus' identity are true. And so this morning, when we, when we go to communion, this is the question I want us to go with, is which aspect of Jesus' identity is he inviting you deeper into this morning? Where is he calling you deeper to understand who he is? And if we will go to him with that, he will start to open up the chambers in our own hearts so that we have room and faith to begin to accept Jesus for who he really is and nothing less. I'm gonna pray for us and then we'll go to communion and let's ask that question with one another. Who is Jesus to you and what places is he trying to take you deeper into who he is?